welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In an increasingly fragmented media environment, where editorials often pass themselves off as reporting or resistance, it's hard to tell which stories are being heard, let alone moving the public outrage needle. Consider Epic Systems Corporation versus Lewis, where the Supreme Court took away workers' ability to mount class action suits against their employers, and instead requires them to go through an individual mandatory arbitration process that is controlled by the company. Taken with the Janus decision, where the court ruled that collective bargaining is a form of lobbying and could cost public sector unions 10 to 30% of their membership, it seems that the labor movement is in a precarious, weakened state. But the darkest hour is often before the dawn. Garrett Kaiser, a contributing editor to Harper's Magazine, wrote the September issue cover story about diverse and committed union members working across the country, who certainly won't be deterred by anything Trump's appointees decide. It's a compelling story, and I was pleased to speak to Garrett over the telephone last week. I began by asking him about the relative lack of coverage of Janus and what its implications are for the future of labor in this country. Okay, well, I hope you won't mind if I expand that question just a little bit, although it will cover your question, and, 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 and ask um, why do labor matters in general get so little press? And then I'll you know, talk about the, uh, the problem for unions. I think to answer that question, you need to ask a few other questions, like who owns the media? And how much of the media is devoted to information and analysis and how much to titillation and distraction? Um, just to cite one example, when I was finishing up my uh, Harper's piece, I read some summaries of you know what had been the labor actions in 2017, and I've since gone on and looked at some in 2018. One of the... Um, labor gains I found in 2017 was that transit workers in Virginia had won the right to bathroom breaks or more bathroom breaks than they had. And I had a few reactions to that. First, how unsexy to use typical media jargon. (laughs) And at the same time, how central to uh, questions of basic human dignity and to the core of what we share as embodied creatures. Absolutely. Now, if there, if there had been a story about a guy who, thanks to some pretty aggressive plastic surgery and some uh, groundbreaking biotechnology, had managed to fulfill his lifelong dream of looking more like an aardvark, There'd be an interview, you know, on all things considered, and there might even be a feature story in the New York Times. But transit workers earning the right to have the dignity of, you know, uh, being able to relieve themselves, that's not so newsworthy or so exciting. And I think whatever press was devoted to the Janus decision, and it did get some attention, not as much as it deserved, but I think that's part of it. As far as the devastation that it has the potential to cause, 
again, uh, the answer, I think, falls into the um, category of common sense. What do you get in this country that you don't pay for? And if you say that people can have union representation, that they can work under contracts that are negotiated by unions, but they are not obliged to pay dues to unions, which is what the Janus decision said for workers in the public sector, then you know what's going to happen. And it's the same thing that happens if you don't pay for repairs on your cars or you don't pay your taxes. Uh, uh, you're going to see, or your light bill, you're going to see a depletion of services. And that is what's likely to happen for these unions. They're not going to be able to pay their bills. They're not going to be able to pay their staffs. And as a result, they could possibly be weaker at the negotiating table. At the same time, uh, as I also discuss in my article, there is the potential that this decision could backfire in some ways in that it may uh, lead to uh, union administrations being more responsive to their rank and file and more militancy on behalf of those who choose to remain in the union and pay their dues. They no longer have to have heart-to-heart uh, -heart discussions and struggles with more conservative or cautious members. I think the union movement has been served by that kind of ideological diversity and dialogue, but if you take it out of the picture, you might end up with uh, more militant union action. To just cite one more specific before leaving the question about the devastation or potential devastation of Janus. Uh, shortly after the ruling, the Trump administration attempted to take away mandatory union dues for home health workers in the Medicare and Medicaid departments. Okay, so if you had someone from the Trump administration here, probably what that person would say is, look, what we're trying to do here is give these people more of their paychecks to take home and not have those blood-sucking unions siphon off that money. Right. But are those paychecks going to go up or go down once you've weakened the union that represents those workers? And do the people in the Trump administration not realize that that's exactly what's going to happen? And is that not exactly the goal they have in mind? Right. I mean, in your article, you discuss this sort of segmentation that happened starting in the late 1970s and then, you know, really going into overdrive in the 1980s that I think many people are aware of where union membership starts to decline and manufacturing jobs in general are started to decline. And then the rise of stuff like Reaganomics and this idea that this trickle down economy is a real <laughs> A real economic phenomenon, which is clearly not, and, and it changed the workforce in you know literal and figurative ways. I mean, to what extent does the changing nature of work, you know, where we've seen this shift away from American manufacturing jobs to more sort of like traditionally what would be considered white collar office work, how has that impacted union membership? Because it seems very easy for work not to really seem like work, you know, answering an email late on a Friday night or over a weekend. But in fact, that is, that's work. That's still work. That's yes. still your labor. And respectfully, I would 
argue that for the person doing it, it probably does seem very much like work. The person yes. answering the email when they could be uh, playing with their kid or whatever. Just to go back to what you said about trickle-down economics, I just wanted to say one thing, that conservatives are always trying to uh, make the case that, you know, if um, the wealthy are, are doing just fine, that it's going to trickle down to uh, others, they're much less willing to make the case that if organized workers, workers and unions are doing well, that that's going to have positive effects on the non-unionized workers. And I would argue that if there's any trickle down going on, it's in the second case and not the first. You're absolutely right that uh, we've seen some real changes in our uh, working sectors. Uh, I was just looking over some stats I had. I mean, in 1959, when yours truly would have been, um, you know, about six years old, there were 600,000 steel workers in the United States by 2010 there were 100,000. Right now, 8% of our economies in manufacture, it was 24%, almost a quarter in 1960. Right now, the biggest uh, employment sectors, at least according to my sources, are uh, nurses, uh, retail sales, cashiers, food service, and janitorial. And what that means is sectors that um, are not let us say, traditional uh, union-type jobs. Uh, in some cases, uh, jobs where there have not been unions before. In some cases, jobs uh, where there's a great amount of turnover because of how little is paid. Another statistic, you know, 65% turnover among retail workers. So even if you try to form a union, um, some of the people you want to form it with aren't going to be there tomorrow. But the nature of work and the relation of um, workers to capital has not changed as much as we would like to think it has. Um, we have this myth in this country of innovation that, you know, everything has changed so much that everything we've learned and everything we think we know, we don't know it all anymore, to which I would say not so fast. As uh, Hector Figueroa, the head of 32BJ in New York, says, yes, the, the, the working sectors have changed. Technology has changed, but the relationship between uh, workers and management has not changed all that much, except that in many cases it's gotten worse. Um, a guy named Stanley Aronowitz, who wrote a really fine short book called The Death and Life of American Labor, has a definition of the working class. And he defines the working class. And in this season, you know, uh, a long-standing tradition, Marx said that class was determined by your relationship to production. Um, and Aronowitz says you're a member of the working class if you work for wages and if you have little or no control over the work you do. That makes you working class. And that also makes you a part of a very large group of um, human beings. Uh, many of which are unorganized, and um, Aronowitz also says we need to look to those sectors that have not been organized in the past. For instance, right now there are about 26 million people working in offices. We've got about 8 million people working in professional and technical areas, many of these not organized, and even 
uh, frontline supervisors. You know, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 excludes supervisors from uh, groups of workers who can be, you know, form a legally recognized, a federally recognized union and all of that. But when you stop and think of it, in many cases, that makes very little sense. I mean, do you know any people who are managers at McDonald's or Pizza Hut? They're still slinging the French fries and doing everything that all the other workers are doing, but they are now called managers, which means they have a few extra responsibilities, including probably some supervisory responsibilities. But by Aronowitz's definition, they're still very much workers, even though they are excluded. Uh, from the protections of the National Labor Relations Act. And that is something that I think if, and others think as well, if labor's going to move forward in the 21st century, it's going to have to organize some sectors that have not been organized before, and including sectors that weren't even around when, um, when the labor movement first started. But it knows how to do that, uh, or it is learning how to do that, and some strides are being made uh, already. Yeah, you're talking about retail having such a high turnover rate. And you see this also in something like the gig economy, which <laughs> supposedly um, people just use Uber or Lyft as a supplement to their income. And then it gets to the point where they have to do it 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week. It's not it's it's their full time job, but they're getting paid substantially less than they would be if they were driving for a medallion cab company, let's say. I was just going to say that's a very good example. I'm sorry to interrupt you um, that you've just cited. And in fact, something like 85% of app-based drivers, the people who work for Uber and uh, Lyft, are making less than minimum wage per hour. Yeah. And I also... Just learned recently that Uber and Lyft have more lobbyists than Walmart, Amazon, and Microsoft combined. Yeah, I mean, Amazon, that's another great example where the popular argument against communism, right? Well, under communism, you only can buy your food and everything from one one place. And then it's like, well, that's what Amazon is now. Like, you literally yeah. buy everything from this thing that is not nationalized, that all of the funds are going to one person, Jeff Bezos, and then the actual workers are, depri- again, deprived of things like bathroom breaks, are working insane hours. Several mm-hmm. people have died while working there because of exhaustion. So much is not working in terms of the way we work and the way we accept the current situation of the labor market. So the fact that it is disposable, the fact that there are restrictions on if you want to work at Walmart, you have to watch a video that says this is why unions are bad. And and this this line being driven in or written into your contract that you will not unionize. So I guess, how do you envision that people working around that? Well, probably the way that workers have worked around it in the past, which is to begin talking to each other and to begin organizing and um, to start realizing their collective power, which, of course, is very easy for me to say sitting here talking to you with my slippers on, (laughs) but um, pursuing that route. And, of course, there are examples and there are people 
and, and organizations, so worker centers and unions that can teach some of those skills and can help some of those uh, some of those people. I've often thought that we've put far too much emphasis in our 21st century economy on blue jeans. You know, if the CEO wears blue jeans to a um, board of directors meeting, and if people are allowed to wear blue jeans to work, it means that we have uh, gone a little closer to uh, to paradise. And uh, I question that. Many of these um, people are just as ruthless as the robber barons of the past. That's the bad news. The good news is that labor found some ways to deal with the robber barons of the past, and I am confident they will find and are finding ways to deal with the robber barons of the present. This sort of leads into the question of, over the past 40 or 50 years, the way in which protest has been handled not only by organizers, but also by police has sort of changed. And now that um, protests are largely organized over email or over Facebook or other other sort of digital means, um, they can, they're monitored and coordinated and they can, you know, sometimes feel as though they're not effective. Whereas having a strike might seem like going too far because the ramifications would be, well, we'll just fire you. We'll just replace you. How would you say that the changing nature of protest has impacted interest in unions or the efficacy of unions? Well, I don't know how it's impacted interest in unions or efficacy in unions, but I think your question is pointing to uh, to an important distinction between you know various forms of protest and what happens in a strike, uh, you're right to say that protests often seem ineffective. I would argue strongly that we still need them and that they are very important if for no other reason than to acquaint those who protest with one another and to keep them from despair. That said, workers are near the wheels that move the machine, mm-hmm. and that tends to make their protests more meaningful, more powerful, but also uh, riskier to them. If I go to a protest at the state capitol over the weekend, you know, I've done that sort of thing, and then uh, put my sign back in the trunk and um, and go to the little bistro on the corner to have lunch. Uh, I'm not going to lose my livelihood. Uh, but someone going on strike, as more than one labor organizer told me, the thing about striking is you better know you're going to win. But just considering this example, if a thousand people show up at an airport to protest the deportation of asylum seekers, that's important that's meaningful, that's significant. But if the pilots and the flight attendants refuse to fly the planes, that's something else. And ultimately, neither group is going to get far without the other. I mean, workers alone and unions alone are too small now uh, to affect change in the society all by themselves. But in concert with other people who are organized around certain causes, uh, they can accomplish a lot and they may be able to push the envelope a little further. One of the people I interviewed in the, uh, for my article was Peter Knowlton, who's the um, 
president of the United Electrical Workers Union. And uh, he said something which I've actually copied down. It was uh, one of the things I had in the original form of the article. Now I have a chance to say it. He said, here's why I'm in the labor movement. We should have had a general strike in 2002 to stop the war in Iraq, and it would have stopped the war in Iraq. If you really want to change the dynamic, you have to do something more than just walk in the street. Historically, and I'm still quoting him, there's either building a guerrilla army or massive nonviolent civil disobedience, which includes and is led by general strikes. If you don't have that, you can't make that kind of change. There's no other group besides workers who have that effect on people, on the people who pull the strings. There just isn't. And uh, to that, I can only say uh, a resounding amen. Mm. I mean, the the parts of your article where you're speaking with these uh, contemporary labor organizers is so, um, it's very heartening because so much of the FBI's work during the 20th century was to sort of erase or dampen the impact of leftists and socialist organizations in the U.S. and even the fact that we have a holiday like Labor Day instead of May Day, which is what the rest of the world has sort of shows. It's not just a leftist paranoia, let's say. How did those workers, how did they find the history, this great legacy of leftism and labor organizing in the U.S.? One of the nurses you speak to calls herself a Eugenia Debs after Eugene V. Debs. Yes, yes. As far as their finding uh, their roots in leftist uh, history and labor history, uh, two things to say. First of all, those who did find it tended to find it in unions that put um, an emphasis on worker education. Mm. There's a guy, you know, one of the premier labor journalists in this country, for my money, named Steve Early, wrote a great book. Well, he's written many books, but one book called Save Our Unions. And in it, he talks about certain recommendations or points that he says just about all unions on the left would agree are necessary. And I think the first one he names is more member education. Mm. But the other side is that there are many workers who don't know their own history, even those in unions that we might identify as either being on the left or having roots in the left. I was talking with a guy named John Borzos, who's um, the director of the Sacramento Teachers Association, and Borzos said that You know, growing up, he never heard much about, you know, his parents' involvement in labor. He knew they worked. And then one day he discovers that his mother had been instrumental in helping to organize a local of the United Rubber Workers Union, (laughs) that he had an uncle that was in the famous Flint sit-down strike. And these people never mentioned that. And his comment was that workers often don't think their history is important. And because of the red baiting that took place under McCarthy, uh, at least some workers, I think, are embarrassed by that history. Uh, When they needn't be, um, they needn't swallow every bit of left-wing propaganda uncritically. But the history um, is relevant and it needs to be recaptured and conserved uh, because um, 
there needs to be some conservatism in the labor movement in terms of preserving that history and even reviving it. And it's certainly relevant, and it couldn't be more relevant than now, that people are finally using words like capitalism, class, working class. I can remember not that long ago when you would uh, raise eyebrows by using words like that. And it's also relevant this history, so that we can put in perspective the idea uh, that labor unions are on the ropes and they're a thing of the past. Again, this is um, a byproduct of our uh, capitalist emphasis on innovation, on the next thing, on the new wave, the idea that, oh, this is old hat, this is done, this is passe, forget about it, move on. I was talking with a, um, a guy who teaches uh, labor studies and labor law at Cornell named Lance Kampa. And sometimes at the beginning of his classes, uh, uh, Professor Kampa uh, reads this statement to his students. Um, and it was made by a guy named George Barnett. And Mr. Barnett said, there is no reason to believe that American trade unionism will so revolutionize itself as to become in the next decade a more potent social influence than it has been in the past decade. And then he asked the students, when do you think that was said? And some would say, oh, it was said in 81 under Reagan. It was said, you know, last year by, uh, by Bill Gates, whatever. It was said in 1932 hmm. on the threshold of the most exciting and militant period of labor history arguably, in our country. It's tantamount to someone declaring the death of rock and roll in 1956. Right. You know, rock and roll is dead and we are seeing the last of it. Oh, no, you ain't. <laughs> and knowing that history, knowing that there have been waves where labor's been in decline uh, and then waves where it's um, increased its membership, as in knowing all history, gives one hope that... Um, one is not merely being crushed by the cycles of change, but um, that lessons that were learned in the past can be used now, along with the things that we have to learn for the first time, because history isn't static. Right. Appreciating those accomplishments of previous generations of the labor movement, that in the history of the world, the idea that there is a 40-hour work week when that was instituted, that was a revolutionary idea, that it was literally throwing everything out, every part of history that had come before it. You know, it wasn't, right. it, was, it, it was truly inspired. And it, it seems that to appreciate that sea change and then also to understand that it could very easily be taken away by things like, quote unquote, innovation, technology, what have you, and that you don't have to accept that by any stretch of the imagination. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, things like a 40-hour week, the weekend, which indeed are under threat. I think it was Aronowitz, but I'm not sure, who points out that, you know, a slogan often used, you see it on bumper stickers in support of labor, is the folks who brought you the weekend. Right. But for many workers in America, the weekend is disappearing. Yep. Time at home is disappearing because of, you know, devices that enable the worker, the uh, management to have you uh, on call. 
24 hours a day. I mean, back in the 1913 Patterson Silk Strike, the workers had a slogan, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. (laughs) And that was achieved, not in that strike, by the way. It came a little bit later, but it can also um, be lost. And, And, you know, this also raises the question of, not only just what are people for, what is work for, what is technology for? Mm-hmm. The answer depends a lot on who owns the technology and who directs the work. Is it for the benefit of people and for the majority of people, or is it for the benefit of those who own the means of production? I mean, why is it, can someone explain to me that with all of these wonderful machines and labor-saving devices, Many people are working more hours than they did, you know, at the beginning of the last century. Right. How can that be? Well, it's not a hard question to answer. We're maximizing profits, and we're maximizing profits by extracting them from workers and from the commonwealth of which those workers are a part. A relatively recent development is not exactly a union, but this idea that workers' rights need to be protected. And Elizabeth Warren has recently um, sponsored a bill called the Accountable Capitalism Act, which again, really great that we're using that term. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, do you feel like that is going to be useful in the wake of Janus? I would be the last person to say that the Accountable Capitalism Act, which has a few provisions, not the least striking of which is the idea that 40% of the governing boards of companies making a billion dollars or more should be elected by the workers. It's certainly a step in a good direction. I'd be the last to call it, dismiss it as a Band-Aid approach. Uh, in fact, that's a term that I, I've come to be suspicious of. You know, if I'm bleeding, I, I, I won't chase away the person who comes with the Band-Aid. Um, I often think of the Black Panther Party in this connection. I'm not necessarily holding them up as models, but, you know, they had a 10-point plan, which was pretty uh, radical and um, innovative and all of that. But they also had breakfast and healthcare programs for kids. And they didn't say, oh, these are just Band-Aid approaches. Let's advance our Marxist-Leninist agenda and let the hungry kids feed themselves. Uh, I think there's much that we can learn from that. So hooray for Elizabeth Warren and for the Accountable Capitalism Act. But I have some reservations and questions. You know, for one thing, it only affects companies making over a billion dollars. So I'm wondering, will it have impact, say, on the subcontractors who work for those companies and sort of farm out, you know, plantation style uh, to an underpaid workforce, some of the work that generates profits for those big companies. Second, it automatically puts the workers on that elected board in a minority. There, you know, workers can elect 40, employees can elect 40% of um, of the board of directors, not 60 or even 50. Uh, and, you know, again, I want to step back and recognize that, you know, Elizabeth Warren is trying to get laws made, and I'm here, you know, pontificating on the telephone. She's obviously trying to weigh what's going to fly and what's not going to fly. Third, you know, where workers are employees, 
from what ranks will they be chosen and will that truly be up to the employees? And I'm thinking, you know, what happens in a typical union election? I mean, an election in a company where the workers are trying to form a union and all that's stacked against those workers and all of the advantages that management has in terms of holding one-on-one meetings and mandatory meetings where workers have to go and listen to paid union-busting consultants talk about how much union stinks. So that's a, a typical uh, National Labor Relations Act protected election process. What is to say that the choosing of these uh, employees or or representatives voted on by employees to serve on boards is going to be uh, any more helpful. And, you know, finally, um, you know, I have to wonder how susceptible it is to the machinations of big money. You know, when you when you strike a blow at big money, the body of big money has ways to start, you know, healing itself right away. What happens when the 40% are given privileges that they are reluctant to lose by bucking the 60%? In other words, at the risk of sounding cynical, will a more democratic system of corporate governance be any less immune to the power of big money than our democracy itself? Nevertheless, I applaud the... um, uh, attempt, and for the re- one of the reasons being one you already stated that, you know, it's put capitalism into, um, you know, into into the realm of discourse. It's like the uh, constantly uh, defeated amendment to uh, to provide uh, uh, restitution for the descendants of slaves. Uh, at the very least, it keeps uh, certain issues um, in the national uh, dialogue. And, you know, I have a great deal of respect for Senator Warren and for Senator Sanders, too. Um, but neither is uh, is the Messiah. And to their credit, neither of them seems to see themselves that way. I often think of a quote. You mentioned Debs before. Um, one of my favorite quotes by Eugene Debs is, and I'm paraphrasing now, Uh, Do not think that I am the Moses who is going to lead you out of the capitalist wilderness, because if I can lead you out, somebody else can lead you back in. So laws like this are important, uh, but does legislation ever trump the importance of organized, concerted, uh, democratic action on the part of um, workers? I don't know, but we need everything. We need everything we can get to help get us to a better place. Just look at um, campaign finance reform, where that is something where it's just like, oh, we can fix this, we can fix this, and then it it is never fixed. It only ever mm-hmm. gets worse. Um, you know, you're talking about the potential that this could pass. The people on the board, they would have access versus enacting political change without uh, making... Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren into the new messiah. How can we hold political leaders to account and not have somebody like Hillary Clinton, who was bargaining down the fight for 15 line even before she got into office for for seemingly no good reason? Well, 
that reminds me, your mention of Hillary Clinton and also political accountability reminds me of a story that is not in the article as it was published, but it's one that I heard and often think of. And it was told to me by a guy named Larry Hanley, who um, was a bus driver and uh, is now the head of uh, one of the transit unions, the ATU, the American Amalgamated, excuse me, transit union. And um, he was telling me about before the election, when the time came for endorsements from unions of presidential candidates, that he received a call from Hillary Clinton and that he had what he considered was a personal and a good relationship with Hillary Clinton. I believe his daughter worked um, as an intern for her, and so it was a cordial association. And um, he said um, Clinton called him up, probably thinking in his words that the endorsement was, um, you know, a no-brainer and would just happen. But he challenged her and he said, you know, you've got to listen to some of the um, discontent among workers. And he cited uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and said, you know, what, what they're saying, you know, you need to listen to. And according to Hanley, Clinton's response was, I'm the only Democrat who can win. And then he went on to challenge her about some other things um, in the economy and in the military, et cetera. And she kept coming back. I'm the only Democrat who can win. And finally, he said, you know what? I've been winning so long. I want to try losing to see if it feels any better. <laughs> and his union uh, endorsed Sanders. And so if you ask me how we can hold political leaders to account, you know, maybe a willingness to lose um, might help uh, a willingness to stand on some um, principles mm -hmm. and uh, listen to people and r could be uh, helpful. Uh, you also mentioned one of the big steps, and that is getting the influence of big money out of elections. I don't know how it can be done, uh, but if it's not done, our hopes of solving anything significant through the electoral process are pretty small. Again, citing history, this is no new problem and it is no new idea. As I say in the essay for Harper's, the United Electrical Workers were calling for Wall Street to be driven out of Washington as long ago as 1947. And I also think, uh, in terms of making our leaders more accountable to us, you know, unions also need to be more accountable to their members. When I was talking to some of the union folks, you know, I asked them, well, how are endorsements made? In other words, when you endorse a political candidate, how does that happen? And I only found or heard of one union where the rank and file actually sit down and have an election and say, we want to endorse this person. I'm not saying it's the only union. I'm saying it's the only one I found, which was um, the Communication Workers of America. Some unions polled their members. Some unions decided on endorsements at conventions where there were, uh, you know, representatives from different locals come to the convention and express their will as to an endorsement. But I did not find widespread you know, democratic, one-person, one-vote elections to determine a political endorsement. And also, I think maybe unions 
and again, I'm not a part of a union, and it's not my place to dictate to the union movement. That needs to come from within, from people who pay the dues. But I would say that it seems to me unions wouldn't be hurt if they made their endorsements conditional and if they withheld their endorsements when they uh, felt that their needs were not being met or responded to in an effective way. Yeah. The whole thing with Sanders, though, is, again, it's, you know, the 2016 election and the whole run up to it seemed to prove to me that all of these things that could supposedly never happen in the United States could happen. And that was good in the sense of someone who calls himself a democratic socialist, uh, comes from the East Coast, could really motivate people to go out and vote for him, could reject the big money and could really try and push push uh, another candidate to the left. And then, of course, it came in the bad with Donald Trump. We're sort of at this crossroads right now politically where these words are in circulation again. They're not haram. But it seems that there isn't really anybody that's going to come up between now and like 2020 that could possibly fill that role of a Sanders except for him. And he is, you know, he's not a spring chicken. Uh, So I guess the question of how labor can work with politics, you know, be it at a local level and uh, or state level, national level, it seems it seems I sometimes worry about it. I'll just say that where it seems it it may be a little bit more tenuous. And again, there's so much there's so much stuff working against it too, to, you know, actively trying to destroy that momentum too. Well, labor unions have um, for a long time been very interested in electoral politics. They haven't always uh, been effective in that domain, but they've certainly played a part in contributing to candidates and canvassing for candidates and showing support for candidates. And I think that's probably going to continue if you want to know if I'm, and I agree with your analysis, by the way, that you know we saw a lot of things in the last two years that we didn't think possible and suddenly are possible, and that is both scary and hopeful. But, you know, obviously I come down on the side of hope. Otherwise, why would I be spending a summer afternoon talking about this stuff, you know? I'd be getting drunk and waiting for the end. Uh, I think we have reasons to be hopeful. And, you know, if Bernie Sanders runs again in 2020, I think he will be very effective. I think he was effective before. I think he learned some things from uh, the um, the elections in the past. And I think that uh, many people, including people who wouldn't vote for him, trust him. Yeah. You know, Sanders has uh, been one of the leaders of the fight to see that veterans get what they deserve. And I think that, you know, has resonated in certain sectors of the working class. I happen to live in a red state, but in a very blue corner of it. I live um, in the Northeast Kingdom, which is very rural, um, where you, you're going to see Trump signs that you might have to search for elsewhere in Vermont. Mm. But I've sat down with dyed-in-the-wool conservatives who speak with nothing but affection and reverence for Bernie Sanders, which shows that it is possible, you know, to be a socialist and be of the left, but also to connect 
uh, with people and to connect with a broader spectrum of people. But, you know, if his running for president is the be-all and end-all, then we're lost. And nobody knows that better than Senator Sanders himself. I happen to attend a rally uh, of his early on, and this, uh, I guess, was back in, oh, goodness, it might have even been in 2015. I can't remember. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, if you think Bernie Sanders going into the White House is going to change one thing, you've got another thing coming. The changes will only come when millions and millions of people stand together and say this is enough. He recognizes that, and there's certainly other upcoming political figures who I think have taken inspiration and courage from his candidacy. And if he doesn't run, uh, there will be others running, and some of them are running even now. Um, And I think that, uh, thinking of Debs again, Debs once said that uh, an election isn't socialism any more than a menu is a meal. Right. but he was uh, Democratic, uh, who ran for president himself. Debs was. And uh, I think the best changes happen nonviolently and democratically. And I'm hoping uh, I will live to see some of them sure. before I go. We can all hope. <laughs> yeah. We should. Yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you're not going to yeah. get anywhere by being uh, upset and not doing anything you have to there has to be a proactive element to this which is again i why i appreciate your story where it's it's not just people being like complaining about the situation but actively being like yeah this is not going to change unless i take responsibility i was impressed again and again violet when i was talking to labor people and i didn't talk to everybody in the movement you know i'd still be doing that just to scratch the surface but talking to people who would have every rational reason to be mightily discouraged mm-hmm. and yet who just simply refuse to give up hope and whose overall outlook, I would have to say, was uh, one of hope. Not a Pollyanna-ish hope, but a determined hope and, uh, and a belief in workers and in the human spirit. I think that's a good note to end on. But I guess before we close, are there any books that you found particularly helpful uh, during your research that you would recommend to people listening to this podcast so they can find out more about the labor movement in general? Uh, For people who like to read online, there is an organization called Labor Notes. Uh, They're a rank-and-file union organization that's been around. They support the rank-and-file unionism. Mm -hmm. They do great reports, and um, they can be found uh, online. Just look up labor notes, and you'll you'll find them. Uh, And some books that were very helpful to me, I've already mentioned Steve Early, Save Our Union, and Stanley Aronowitz's The Death and Life of American Labor uh, also. Uh, Jane McAlevey's work, uh, her most recent book that I'm aware of, No Shortcuts, and Bill Fletcher and Fernando Gabhassan, who wrote a book um, a few years ago called um, Solidarity Divided about social justice unionism 
And then finally, for someone who's just looking for a little bit of that lost history, mm. and there are many excellent books on that, but I would recommend Sharon Smith's book, Subterranean Fire. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 